Today we're going to be reading from Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel's about three quarters of the way through the Bible. So we're going to read all of chapter 8 starting at verse 1. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns, standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased, and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal, and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw down some of the, some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord, and it took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of the rebellion of the Lord's people, and the daily sacrifice was given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary, and the host that will be trampled underfoot? He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man, and I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, Understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep, with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I am going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia, the shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. 
in the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Well, thank you, Matthew and Laura, for reading for us. Uh, and uh, if any of the younger ones uh, have got activities that may be downloaded from Darren that they want to be getting on with, uh, then now be the time for that. We long, don't we, to know the future, uh, especially just now. Uh, uh, how long is this pandemic going to go on for? When will there be a, a vaccine? Uh, when will lockdown restrictions ease? But it's not just now that we long to know the future. We're always like that. Uh, whether it's our horoscopes uh, or our fortune tellers, uh, tarot cards uh, or palm readers, our fascination with, with anything that might give us a glimpse into the future has always been pronounced. Uh, of course, nowadays, uh, it's not so much uh, those kind of ways of looking into the future. We, we give them different names now, our fortune tellers. Uh, we call them analysts, financial analysts, social analysts, uh, economic analysts. Anyone who we think may be able to, to anticipate uh, what's coming. Uh, which is why I think these past few months have been so very disturbing to us. Because no one called it, did they? No one saw this pandemic coming round the corner. No analyst predicted the way that our world would turn out over these past months. And that leaves us kind of disturbed, slightly troubled, slightly unnerved by uh, the way in which we didn't see things coming. Well, chapter 8 of the book of Daniel uh, speaks about the future uh, and does so in ways that will uh, bring to us both comfort and some measure of disturbance in equal measure. As you may remember, we've entered the apocalyptic section of the book uh, left behind are the familiar territory of fiery furnaces and, and lion's dens. And in their place, uh, fearsome beasts of strange imagery. Uh, but while we feel fascinated and in familiar territory with the lion's den, the writers of the New Testament were much more interested in this apocalyptic section. Because it spoke to them about the events of the end. Uh, yes, it did so in strange imagery, but in that strange imagery conveyed a sense of a, uh, of a period of conflict and, and difficulty 
both military and spiritual, which would finally uh, usher in an eternal reign of peace. And all of it intended, as the writers of the New Testament understood, to, to provide some measure of comfort and encouragement to believers who found themselves in times of struggle. Our first heading is good news. There is someone who knows the future. Let me read from verse 1. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision, after, one, after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns, standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased, and it became great. Uh, we're 550 years before Christ, uh, at a time when a man called Cyrus uh, has forged an alliance between the Medes and the Persians. And in less than 20 years from now, uh, the, the empire that he has created will overthrow the mighty Babylonian empire. And Susa, the city where this vision takes place, uh, will become the winter residence for his palace. Uh, because that's what this vision is all about. Uh, we're told that in verse 20. The two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. Powerful, mighty. Not a bull in a china shop, but a ram. Doing as it pleases, becoming great. But blink, and it's gone. Verse 5. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in a great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. Well, who is this new kid on the block? Sorry, that was a little pun there, if you got it. Uh, well, according uh, to verse 21, this shaggy goat is the king of Greece. Uh, don't you love that shaggy goat? We are talking about Alexander the Great here, uh, one of the, the greatest military geniuses the world has ever seen, who, before he'd reached the age of 30, had, had conquered most of the known world. I mean, you and I, by the time we're 30, we just think we're just about grown up. But blink, and he's gone too. Verse 8. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Now, don't you like that? Alexander the Great, come and gone in a sentence. 
and in his place uh, these four horns. Now they represent the four generals uh, amongst whom his kingdom was divided after his death in 323. The detail of all of this really is extraordinary, isn't it? Um, I was trying to think of a, of a useful comparison to try and help us catch what's going on here. And, uh, and I heard someone do it like this. That they said, imagine that in about 590, uh, sorry, in, in about 1590, so uh, just at the, uh, the tail end of the 16th century, imagine that William Shakespeare sat down to write a sonnet. And, and suppose that in his sonnet he described the following events. First, the rise and fall of the British Empire. Then the growing power of North America. Uh, then he mentioned a conflict in Europe that erupted in two world wars. Then the rise of the Soviet bloc before charting the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the USSR and the growing influence of China. In other words, he placed 400 years of world history and described them in, in considerable detail, all in a piece of writing that was composed long before even the very first of them that took place. Because that's what we have here. And it tells us, when, when we see this, this astonishing account, written uh, predicting this sweep of world history, and yet written before any of it took place. What it tells us is that there is someone who knows the future. Someone who charts the rise and falls of kingdoms, who sees them just as players on the stage for a time. Someone who sees the end from the beginning, who has it all in hand. And that someone is not us. That someone is the God who sits outside time, the God who paints on a canvas so much bigger than one we could ever possibly imagine. The God to whom a thousand days, a thousand years is like a day. And you know, when we contemplate the, the chaos that our world has been thrown into in the last few months, there is something profoundly reassuring and to know that there is a God who charts uh, world history in this way. That's the good news. There is someone who knows the future. The bad news, second heading, the bad news is that the future that we see predicted here is both terrible and threatening. This history, um, in kind of 10 minutes, uh, has a focus. And the focus of the history is a man who is described in verse 23 as a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue. Uh, within the vision itself, back in verse 9, uh, where uh, this man is described to us in this way. Out of one of them, out of those four horns, in other words, out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered, and in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground.
Now again, as we were thinking last week, don't worry about the precise detail. Catch the sense. Both God's people and God's place are overrun. God's truth is thrown to the ground. Well, what lies behind this picture uh, were real events. With the invasion of Jerusalem by Antiochus IV in 169 BC, it was a bloodbath. Thousands died in a matter of days. Uh, the temple was desecrated. Uh, the law, the book of the law, was burned, and uh, a sacrifice of a pig uh, was made on the altar to the Greek god Zeus. And in response to these terrible, terrible events, as they're described here in this vision, the holy ones, verse 13, cry out, how long? How long will it be until all of these things are finally done and God's people are, are out the far side of them? And the answer comes, verse 14, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings and then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Now, if you feel like grabbing your calculator at this point and, and work out what this 2,300 days or evenings and mornings uh, could represent, just resist that temptation. Because in apocalyptic numbers, don't generally work like that. The, the point I think here is simply that this will be a long period of time, but it is a, a limited period of time. It will finally come to an end but the trial will be terrible. Um, it's described here, isn't it, almost like an assault on heaven itself, the, the, the starry host thrown down. And according to the interpretation in verse 24, this man will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the Prince of Princes. Yet he too will be destroyed, but not by human power. So see where this leads. Good news, there is one who knows the future, uh, in whose hands uh, the future uh, is contained. But then bad news, this future involves uh, terrible events of persecution and loss until finally, some good news again, that loss will come to an end. And you want to think, well, is that it? Is that the best we can say? Well, not quite. We also need to, to realise that this pattern of terrible events, terrible persecution, terrible things happening to God's people, well, it is often and typically part of God's plan. It is the route that he seems to use to get to the end that he has in mind. And we see that most clearly and most terribly in the events surrounding Jesus Christ. Do you remember? Remember that moment on trial before the Roman governor? who asks him, what is truth? And then calmly condemns an innocent man to death. 
We see it in the moment when the sanctuary was desecrated. Only not, not the sanctuary inside a bricks and mortar temple. No, the, the true sanctuary, the place where mankind and God really did finally and wonderfully meet in the person of Jesus Christ. We see it to it in the moment when Jesus bowed his head and said, it is finished. And it seemed as if evil had won. And yet that moment that seemed the greatest loss proved to be the greatest triumph. And that's the way it works. That's the way that God seems to choose to do things. The route to his glorious victory is through the most terrible of loss and persecution. But through loss comes victory. Through persecution comes peace. If, if it was true for our Saviour, then it shouldn't surprise us if it will often be true for those of us who follow him as well. But how long? How long before the struggle is ended and victory realised? Well, the answer to that question is in God's hands and not ours. But it is in God's hands. The future is certain. In a moment, we're going to be thinking a little bit more uh, about how it is for us in this period of waiting. But um, before we do that, let's, let's join in a song, uh, a song of lament, uh, a lament for a struggling people who, as they wait, ask, where are you, Lord? Uh, with the music, uh, let's stand and sing. Well, if you've been standing, then do take a seat again. Uh, we've seen so far in uh, this chapter the extraordinary detail uh, with which uh, uh, this vision lays out uh, the future of centuries of historical world events. Uh, and we've seen also that um, this vision is marked with threat for God's people. The journey that lies ahead of them is a journey marked uh, by peril. Uh, and danger. Uh, and it's a vision that therefore leaves Daniel overcome at the thought of what is to come. You see it there in the final verse of the chapter. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. And just as we, we wrap up now, I, I want to speak, if I may, just to, to three different groups of people. Uh, first, a word to the anxious. Um, those for whom I suppose these days of COVID may be uh, pressing your health concerns particularly, uh, leaving you fearful uh, of threat to, to, to health, um, full of fears. Well, it's a funny message, I think, from this chapter. Uh, but, but I think what this chapter would say to us is that things are much worse than you think they are. Pull back, see the big picture, see what Daniel has to look at here. And like him, be appalled. In other words, rather than let our localised concerns about our health and our particular future, stand back and see the much bigger picture on which God is playing out his purposes. 
and realize that if you're in Christ, then you're a part of these things. And therefore, when fears about our health or our finances or, or some form of social anxiety kind of takes hold, we should tell ourselves that our concerns are just too small. If we want to be concerned about something, be concerned about the really big things. Be concerned about the future of God's kingdom, about spiritual truth, about eternity. Be concerned about the terrible persecution of God's people in, in so many different parts of our world at the moment. Th th those are things to really trouble us. And, and when we rest on those, well, our own much smaller fears will be put in proper perspective. Uh, then secondly, a word to those um, who are not so much anxious, but who tend towards confidence and clarity. Uh, what would this chapter uh, say to those of us like that? Well, notice those final words in the chapter. Daniel was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. It's so easy to overreach, isn't it? So easy to imagine that we know more than we do and, and leave no room for the secret things of God. Uh, my old boss, Mark Ashton, uh, used to use a diagram to, to try and capture that. Uh, uh, to take a, a huge circle like this uh, and imagine that that represents all of the, the wisdom and knowledge of God. Uh, and then imagine that this tiny dot so small that you can perhaps barely see it on your screen, that that represents our, our tiny and finite minds. Well, how could we ever imagine that all that God knows, all that God is, could, could be squeezed into our tiny and finite minds? You and I will never understand God, never comprehend him, never, never reach the end of his infinite wisdom. And humility demands nothing less than that we acknowledge that. That he surpasses us in any, every, every way. And, and maybe there should be times when we read his word in the Bible and we feel overcome by the greatness of the things that are being described. Do you have quiet times like that? When the very magnitude of what is being said of God leaves you overwhelmed, like Daniel, speechless, worn out and exhausted. It's not a common experience in our quiet times, is it? Perhaps it should be. It's certainly not right if encountering God in his word leaves us, as it were, kind of mentally imagining we've simply ticked off another item on our list of interesting things about God. So a word to the anxious, a word to, to those who are confident and clear. Uh, and then finally, a, a word to those who we might describe as casual, complacent. I suppose I'm thinking here of those who are comfortably drifting in their Christian lives. Not too zealous, not wanting to be too earnest about these things, just kind of cool about the things of God. Well, wouldn't a chapter like this leave us rather amazed 
by God's grace, we should be included in things of this magnitude. That, that we might be given a place, albeit a very small part, uh, in these great plans and purposes of God. It can't be right, can it, to be, to be casual about being included in something of this magnitude. Uh, this past week, um, slightly with trepidation, I, I watched the, uh, the video on the, on the Washington Post website uh, that uh, they've put together a, a timeline uh, of uh, the death of George Floyd. And it was a simply terrible thing to watch. Horrible to see the events that unfolded. And, and, and I don't think anyone ought to be able to watch that uh, without a, a rising sense of the outrage that it represents. Uh, and to be stirred to, to desire to, to fight against injustice. Uh, to see a world where that kind of oppression uh, is removed. We shouldn't be casual about injustice in our world. Like Daniel, we should be about the king's business. Only not for us, the king of Babylon, but for us, the king of eternity. And our eternal king stands for righteousness and he stands for justice. And that means that standing for Christ will mean standing up for the oppressed. It'll mean rooting out prejudice, and that will include the prejudice that we find inside our own hearts. But standing up for Christ will also mean proclaiming the kingdom that, that will draw together people from every tribe and tongue and nation all gathered together, together devoted in worship of the Son on the throne. Daniel's vision is a vision of the end, and it's a wonderful end. But the, the route to that end passes through terrible events, events that we now know include even the death of God's own Son. It's a vision that is so grand, so immeasurably vast, that it eclipses our anxiety. It humbles our presumption. And it leaves us no ground to be complacent as we seek to serve the kingdom of such a king. Let me lead us in a prayer. Uh, Father God, thank you for this vision of uh, the great and glorious things uh, that you are accomplishing uh, through the establishing of the kingdom of your Son. Thank you for these reminders uh, that the path to the establishing of your kingdom uh, travels uh, through terrible things, uh, even the death of Christ on the cross. And please would you renew our determination uh, to set aside uh, the things that so often concern us 
and in their place be concerned for your glory, your honour, your kingdom. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to close now with a final song, great song uh, for us to be singing at this point, uh, reminding ourselves of the greatness of God uh, and the fortress uh, that he is uh, as uh, we see his glory. I stand with the music to sing.